I started a new series last week, collection of talks called Nothing But The Best. And we're talking about the fact that a lot of us, even those of us who've you know, had faith or had belief in God for a long time, we end up settling in life for far less than what God actually promised us. We, we settle for far less than what God says is possible for our lives. And so this series is about saying, I'm not gonna settle for mediocre when God has promised me the best. I'm not gonna settle for compromise when God has promised me a life of excellence. And I'm not gonna settle for scraps when I'm a child and my father says that I have a place at the table in his banquet hall. And so nothing but the best is us saying, I'm gonna believe God for what he actually promises me and I'm gonna live the life that God says is possible. Is anyone ready for nothing but the best? Amen. And, and last week we talked about the fact that a lot of us don't really live the life that God has for us and we end up making a lot of compromises because the way that life comes at us, it, it causes us to go in certain modes. And we talked last week about three different modes that we tend to have as we live life that keeps us from all of God's promises. The first mode that we talked about was survival mode. And a lot of us live there. And the whole ambition, the whole goal of life is purely just to make it to the end of the day. And we're not thinking about the future. We're, we're not thinking about the promises of what could be. We are only focused on making it through today and getting through today. And that's survival mode. We, we talked about another mode, which is maintaining mode. And that's when life is pretty good. It's not great, but it's okay. And I'm content to settle for that because getting out of okay is uncomfortable and my desire for comfort keeps pulling me back into average and I miss out on everything that God has for me as a result. A lot of us who've been believers for a long time, we live there. It's like, well, yeah, I gave a lot before. I, I served a lot before. I saw God do great things before and so I'm content now. And God's like, no, there's more in front of you but it's gonna cause you to step out in faith if you want it. The third mode that we talked about was striving mode, which is I'm fighting every single day to try and get what I want out of life, but it's all up to me. I'm making it happen. I'm fighting. I'm trying to go for it. And it's not about what God has, it's about what I can do. And today I wanna talk about the fourth mode, and this is the mode that God actually wants us to live in. Are you ready for it? All right, but I wanna take us to 1 Corinthians chapter two. And this is Paul and he's writing to, to the church in Corinth. And if you don't know the story, Paul at one point traveled to the city of Corinth and he told people about Jesus. And as a result, a lot of people believed and the church was born. And at this time, Paul has moved on to another city to do the same thing somewhere else. But he writes back to the Corinthians and this is what he says. So it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. In other words, he's like, when I showed up, I was not all that. I, I didn't have great words to say. I, I wasn't the best convincer. I, I wasn't the best speech giver. I, I wasn't the guy that everyone thought would be, you know, head of the class, number one influential. I wasn't really any of that. He says, so I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness 
with great fear and trembling. And that doesn't mean that he was afraid. What it means is that he had so much awe and reverence for the message of Jesus that he held it in such high esteem that it was the only thing that mattered. He says, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. And I love this because Paul is saying, I'm not that awesome. And you all didn't believe in Jesus because I'm awesome. You believed in Jesus because I'm pretty not awesome. And that meant that I didn't get in the way. It wasn't about me. It was about Jesus. But when I spoke about Jesus, even though I am not the best speech giver and I'm not the most talented person, when I spoke about Jesus, you experienced the power of God. The power of God to change you and transform you and save you. And he said, and I'm pumped about that because you don't believe in Jesus because of my awesomeness. You believe in Jesus because you've experienced the power of what Jesus can do in your life. And I love that because Paul is like, my life and the impact of my life has nothing to do with how great I am. I love that. So then he goes on to say, but let me tell you what God has for you. Let me tell you the promise that he's written over your future. He says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no human mind has conceived the things that God has prepared for those who love them, who love him. It is so good, it is beyond your comprehension. These are the things that God has revealed to us by his spirit. And then down in verse 12, what we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God that we might understand what God has freely given to us. And so Paul is going on and he's like, if you're wondering what the secret sauce of my life is, it ain't me, because I'm not all that. So I'm gonna get out of the way and just make it all about Jesus. And he says, but when we make it all about Jesus, my God, does he take us to good places. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can comprehend how good it is what he's got prepared for us. But then he says, but if you wanna see what God has for you, you have to look at life through a different lens. Because if we look at life through a natural lens and we see ourselves and we see the world around us just like everybody else does, we will never be able to perceive what God has prepared for us. He says, no, we need to see with a different lens. We need to see things through the lens of God's spirit. And if we can see with his eyes, through his spirit, man, will we see the exceeding abundant and beyond. But I can't see through natural eyes. You know why? Because this world lies to us. And it doesn't tell us the truth. And my feelings lie. And the world around me lies. And if I just take what everyone is saying to be factual in my life, I will not see what God has for me. Do you know why? Because I'll make it all about me. Because that's what this world tells me to do. It's about you. Go be awesomer. And then we spend our whole lives trying to be awesome. But that is not, that is not how you get what God has for you. All right, so are you ready for the fourth mode? The mode that God really has for you? thriving mode. God wants us to thrive. 
And there is a verse that I think perfectly articulates what thriving mode is. And it's in a little letter that we call Third John. And in the second verse, it says this, Beloved, I pray that you would prosper in all things. In how many things? All things. And be in health, just as your soul prospers. And so he says, my prayer for you is that every facet of your life is prospering. But getting every facet of your life to prosper isn't because you're working really hard to get every facet of your life to prosper. He says, I pray that you prosper in all things just as your soul prospers. And so prosperity in my soul is what causes prosperity in every other part of my life. And you're like, what the heck is prosperity? Well, prospering, it's this idea that I have everything that I need, but I don't just have everything I need. I've got everything I need and far more so that my life is overflowing. And it talks about every area of my life, emotionally, mentally, relationally, yes, financially, which is normally what we associate with the word prospering, but it's much more than that. It's every area of my life. And what we're, what we're hearing John say is, if you would prosper in here, which is what God wants for you, then you will prosper out here. But a lot of us get it twisted and we think, I need to prosper in all of these ways so that then I prosper in here. But that doesn't lead to thriving because thriving doesn't come through circumstance, it comes through your soul stance. And so in order for us to get to the place where we are prospering in our souls, well, we have to learn what thriving is. But, but we have been fed lies. Every day of our life, we are fed lies. And these lies, when we accept them as truth, it makes it impossible for us to prosper in our souls. And this is what keeps us out of thriving. And so what we believe is ultimately going to determine, I've had too much coffee. What we believe, I'm stuttering. I don't know who was working the coffee bar before church. It was so good. And if I stutter all night, it's their fault. All right. (laughs) Actually, the coffee's really good. All right. I'm not going to thrive until I undo some beliefs. Because thriving comes in my soul, and the health of my soul is determined by what I believe. And so I put a title on this message. I wrote it down the other day. I believe I can thrive. And when I wrote that down, I thought, that sounds weirdly familiar. It's like, what is that? I believe I can, it's got a a melody. I believe I can, I think about it every night and day. And fly away. Come on. I believe I can soar. To the open door. <laughs> I believe I can thrive. Go ahead and make some noise for 90s R&B. All right, I'm going to give you a few lies that we have to break agreement with. A few lies that the world tells us that's going to keep us out of thriving mode. A few lies that we need to decide tonight we no longer accept it as truth. You ready? Number one lie. How I feel 
is who I am. How I feel is who I am. The world tells us this. Our entire society is telling us this every single day. How do you feel today? Embrace it. Own it. Hold on to it. It is true, and we validate it. But what if my feelings don't tell me the truth? I've just validated a lie about who I am. And that's not gonna lead to peace. That's gonna lead to whole levels of brokenness. See, the truth about feelings is that feelings are good. Like, God created emotions. He is emotional, and he made us emotional because we're made in his image. And so feelings are important, and they are necessary. But we need to understand what feelings are for. Look at what David says in Psalm chapter 42. He has a conversation with his own soul. And in in the scriptures, the soul always talks about, it always means the mind, the will, and the emotions. So he's having a conversation with his emotions. And he says to himself, hey soul, why are you depressed? Now that's really interesting to me because David is not denying how he feels. He is acknowledging this is how I feel. But then he challenges why he feels that way. I feel this way, but I'm going to challenge it. Now that right there is heresy in the system of our world today. Don't you dare deny how you feel. Well, David did. David looks at it. He doesn't deny it, but he confronts it. He says, why are you depressed? Why are you messed up? That's how I understand disturbed. How, why are you messed up? And then he tells his soul to do something. He says, lift your eyes off of what you feel, off of what you see, off of what the world is telling you. Take your eyes off of it and instead lift your eyes to God. And then here's what I'm going to do as I lift my eyes to God. Right in the place where I feel depressed, in the place I feel disturbed, I'm going to put a praise on it right there. Lift my eyes to God, yet I will praise him. And then he says, my soul is downcast. I am depressed. So here's what I'm going to do about it. Therefore, I will remember you. I love this because this is like a perfect blueprint for how to handle our emotions. It's not denying them, but it is challenging them. And then ultimately, it's about telling your soul, what are you really going to believe about yourself? See, emotions are important. You know, if somebody that you love dies... You were made to feel sad. And feeling sad is not bad. It is not unholy. It is not something God is disappointed in. No, he created you to function that way. And when you are sad, it tells you some important things that you need to know. See, feelings, they help you understand where you are. But they don't always tell the truth about how to move forward. And so when I feel sad, that is a good thing because it helps me understand where I am and why I am where I am. But that same feeling cannot give me the pathway to move forward in life either. Because if I take what the world tells me, which is own how you feel and embrace it and hang on to it and then become it, I don't just feel sad, I have become sadness. And that is not what God created you to be. You feel it, 
but the feeling is meant to reveal something to you so that you can then do what? Lift your eyes to the purposes of God, the promises of God, the faithfulness of God, and say, yes, but here's where the source of truth lies. The source of truth does not lie in my soul. The source of truth lies in the one who sits above all of heaven and earth, the one who put this whole thing into motion. That is the source of truth. Feelings show me where I am. Feelings also help me understand what I value. See, because if I feel sad when I lose somebody, what that means is that that person mattered. That experience, it mattered. There were things about that person that were good that I've lost. But those good things are worth honoring and learning from. And yes, there also may have been some things about that person that were not so good. And that also can make me feel sad. But those things are also things that I can hold as a, as a lamp to say, this is not who I wanna be. I've learned from it. It was not good, and so I won't be that way. See, feelings help me understand what I value. But feelings can't tell me who I am. I am sad, but I am not my sadness. You, you might feel a certain way about yourself, but just because you feel it doesn't mean that that's true to say that's who you are. Well, I am just a very anxious person. No, you're not. You feel some anxiety right now. What are you supposed to learn because of that? But you are not your anxiety. You're a child of God and you were created to thrive. And so why am I downcast? Let me investigate and understand. But then I'm going to lift my eyes to the purposes of God and I'm going to put a praise right there. And maybe the fact that you feel anxious is because the Lord is telling you, you are doing too much. Stop it. This is not healthy. God doesn't shield you from all negative emotions. He'll use negative emotions to teach you some things sometimes. The point isn't your emotions. The point is the purposes and promise of God. All right, so the first lie is I am how I, who, how I feel. The second lie is this. I am fundamentally deficient. And this lie, I think, is the greatest killer of all because this lie keeps you from advancing into what you can be and what you can do. But no one ever knows the things that you didn't do because you talked yourself out of it before you even took any action steps towards it. See, this belief that I'm fundamentally deficient, you know what it does? It means that you talk yourself out of going for the promotion because you don't think you're good enough to go for it. It means that you talk yourself out of pursuing that friendship or that relationship because you don't think that they'll accept you. And you lose what could be because you talked yourself out of it because you convinced yourself that you weren't good enough for it. I didn't even apply to that college. Why, I'd never get in. No one knows what you didn't do. But this belief, this lie that the world tells you that you're fundamentally deficient stole your future from you. And God's like, I had... No eye has seen for you. And you settled for, a lot of eyes have seen this before. Why? Because you didn't think you were worthy of this. But the problem with this lie is that it is actually kind of true. Because you are really screwed up. And we all have screwed up. <laughs> and we are all sinners. And so there's a lot of fuel on this one. Oh, I can think about all the times that I was fundamentally deficient. But this is why we are in a room on a Sunday. 
because there is a better word that was spoken over our lives. We were fundamentally deficient. But then Jesus came to reverse the truth about who we are. And what we deserved has been replaced with what he gave us. And what we earned has been replaced with what we could never earn. Because God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for me. So that I could become the righteousness of God in Christ. He made Jesus to become my sin. And now I'm no longer fundamentally deficient. That, no, the blood of Jesus says a better word. No, he took my sin and what did he do? He gave me righteousness. That verse right there sums up the entire gospel. That's what we believe, church. So if you have accepted Jesus, you are no longer fundamentally deficient. You are now, because of the blood of Jesus, fundamentally righteous. And you're like, how can I be righteous? I don't earn it. Don't water down the blood of Jesus by turning it into something that you think you can deserve. Because you can't deserve it. You can't earn it. Which is why it is radically amazing and worth celebrating every day of our lives from here until eternity. So then we root ourselves in the truth, Romans 8 verse 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. And so when the world tells me that I'm fundamentally deficient and I need to work my way out of my deficiency, I, I break agreement with that lie. And I say, but that's not what the blood says. And the blood is a stain that can't be removed. But, you know, that doesn't mean I'm perfect. I am righteous in the sight of God. But man, there are still times when old Jason wants to show up to the party. And uh, he didn't make anything good. And those doubts come and temptation comes. And then you have all this evidence again. Oh, I am deficient because I couldn't keep myself holy. Oh, so you couldn't get holy through your own effort. So Jesus had to die to make you holy. But now that Jesus made you holy, now it's your job to keep yourself holy? Yeah, that doesn't make sense at all. Which is why we have this incredible promise in Romans chapter five, where sin increases and abounds, grace has surpassed it and increased even more and superabounded. So in every area that I feel deficient today, God's grace superabounds in that place. My weaknesses abound, but his grace superabounds. My failures abound, but his grace superabounds. And you might be like, Jason, you better be careful preaching this kind of gospel because you are gonna give people license to go and do stupid stuff and to sin because you're telling them that they're righteous because of the blood and not their behavior. And what if they all go and sin and do stupid things? Here's what I know to be true. When you understand how good and amazing the, the grace of God is, when, when you taste and see how beautiful and desirable and amazing Jesus really is, oh, it eviscerates your appetite for lesser things. It takes it away. Hey, I have never seen, I have never seen a dude with a Ferrari take it off-roading through mud puddles. I've never seen that. Do you know why? 
Because when you know the value of that Ferrari, you don't drive it through mud. And when you know your value because of the grace of Jesus, you don't feel at home in mud either. I'm not fundamentally deficient, I'm fundamentally righteous. And so if we need more holiness in our lives, if we need more holiness in our church, let me tell you how we're gonna get there. It's not gonna be through trying harder and working harder. If we want more holiness in our lives and in our church, it's gonna be because we have a better revelation of how good God really is, how beautiful he really is. Because when you see how good he is, your appetite for everything that is less goes away. Number three, third lie. I can only have peace if other people agree with me, or like me, or value me. See, a lot of us are chasing things to make us feel like we are thriving. You know, you know we chase this, this pursuit to get people to like us, because we think that if other people like us, then we'll be happy. You know, we pursue things that make it feel like we're not deficient because we believe that we are. You know, we, we pursue things to make us feel good because we don't know how to take authority over our emotions. We, we pursue things that, that we think is gonna make other people pay attention to us. And man, we, we have created a massive mess, guys. Guys, we've really screwed up society. Like, we've created a whole world now where it is easy to make the number one objective of your life to be more likes and follows. And people will spend so much money, effort, time, attention to be the kind of person that other people like and follow. Look at how awesome I am. Look at how great I look. Look at the amazing things I've done. Look at the amazing places I've been. And we think that if everyone pays attention to us, that that's gonna make us feel like we are thriving. But it's all empty. It doesn't get us there. No, what it does and what we're seeing is that it drives us mad and makes us deeply depressed and makes us hate our lives even more. That's what it does. But yet, we wanna pursue it. I want people to like me. But the truth is, is that your value can't be assigned by another person. Your value can only be assigned by the one who created you. Why is a Ferrari more expensive than a Chevy Volt? Why? Because who decided that the Ferrari was more expensive than the Chevy Volt? Who decided? It wasn't the Chevy Volt, right? The Chevy Volt didn't go driving down the road looking at that Ferrari and say, you suck. No. It can't do that. Why? Because only the manufacturer can set the value. And it doesn't matter what the Volt's opinion is. It's not going to change the value of the Ferrari. It can't change the value because the Volt didn't make the Ferrari. So it can't assign value to the Ferrari. And the truth is, is that we're looking at a bunch of Chevy Volts to tell us that we're a Ferrari. And guess what? They can't do it. Because they didn't make us. They can't give us our value. And so... The blood of Jesus has been assigned to us. The fatherhood of God has been given to us. That places our value. It doesn't matter if people agree with you or not. It doesn't matter if a million people follow you or a hundred people follow you. It doesn't matter because that's not where your value is. 
I love in Ephesians chapter 2, Jesus himself is our peace. No one else can be our peace. He's the only one that can be our peace. So I have to break the agreement with the lie that other people's opinion of me determines my value. It doesn't. Here's the truth. I am not like Paul. I am not the most eloquent person. I'm not the most good looking person. I'm not the most talented person. I'm like least likely to be up here. When I was in middle school and high school, I was the weird kid in the corner. I was not the popular kid. I'm serious. I was not most likely to succeed. And I definitely was not the person getting up in front of the school and talking to them about anything. Because I was the weird kid. I'm glad I didn't chase their approval. And the reason why is because when I was like 16 or 17 years old, I had an encounter with the presence of God that changed me forever. And all of a sudden, I'm like, I don't really care what anyone else thinks about me because I know what you think about me. And now I can be free. I can be free to be who I'm made to be. All right, I gotta, I gotta keep going. Um, line number four. Are you still with me, church? Line number four. My problems are evidence that I don't have God's favor. See, we look at our life and sometimes our circumstances don't tell a very good story. And because our circumstances aren't what we want them to be, we think that it somehow means that God isn't really gonna bless me. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for Jason, but not for me. And that's what we think. And we think that our problems are evidence that God's not really on our, on our side, that God doesn't really have our back. If God really loves me, why would that person have left me? If God really loved me, why didn't I get the job? If God really loved me, how come that door didn't open? How come I'm still living here? But can I take you to some words from Paul again, from his, his second letter to the Corinthians? He, he describes the situation that he was in right before he wrote the letter. And he says, I was under so much pressure that I felt like I couldn't endure one more ounce of it. And I was under so much pressure that I didn't even want to live anymore. There's that honesty about my feelings again. I'm honest. Here's where I was. It says, instead, we felt like we had received a sentence of death. And you might be like, well, how did Paul end up there? That sounds terrible. I don't want to live anymore. I'm under so much pressure. How'd you end up there? Let me tell you how Paul ended up there. He was doing exactly what God told him to do. And that's where he ended up. Now, that's some hard theology. I thought God was good. Oh, God was very good. I thought God was writing a good story for Paul. Oh, it was a really good story. Then why did he end up in a place where he wanted to die because he had so much pressure? God didn't shield him from that. God could have prevented that, but God did not prevent it. Well, what did Paul say? He said, we, we felt like we had received the sentence of death, but, listen to this church, you need to get this, but this had to happen, that we might not rely on ourselves, but instead rely on God who raises the dead. He said, I went through so much pressure, but I had to, I had to, 
because it was only in the pressure that I learned how to trust God more than myself. It was only in the pressure that I learned that the lies that the world has been feeding me are actually lies. It was only under the pressure that I learned how to establish myself on the promise of God instead of on the power of my emotions. It was only in the pressure and God didn't shield him from the pressure. If God shielded you from every ounce of pressure in this life, you'd be such a weak invalid, you couldn't do anything. Does it mean that God's mad at you? No, it actually means God loves you. Now, I'm not saying that God sends sickness and disease to hurt his kids. That's not what I'm talking about. But what I am saying is that he won't always make everything easy. He won't shield you from everything bad because those bad things will do something in you that you need in order to have the no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has comprehended kind of life. I needed to go through it. This had to happen because I learned in the pressure how to rely on God more than I relied on myself. Huh. And here's what I learned. He delivered me. He delivered me from the pressure. And so now I know he will deliver me again in the future. On him, we have set our hope because he delivered us he will deliver us, and he will continue to deliver us. On him we set our hope. What's the reoccurring theme? What's the reoccurring thing? Lift your eyes off of what you feel. Lift your eyes off of what you see. Lift your eyes off of your circumstances and lift it on to the goodness of God and the promise of God. And for every place where you feel hurt and pain and loss and frustration, put a praise on it. Lift your eyes. Lift your eyes, lift your eyes, because thriving doesn't come from your circumstances. It comes from something far deeper. And the fifth lie, I will thrive whenever I reach my goals. Oh, I'll thrive one day when I get married. I'll thrive one day when she texts me back. <laughs> I'll thrive one day when I get the promotion, when I get the better job, when I get the nicer house, when we finally have kids. I'll thrive. See, what I've learned in life is that you get what you go for. If you chase with all of your might more money, you'll get more money. If you chase with all of your might a relationship, you will find someone who will marry you. If you chase with all of your might a life where there are no problems, Oh, you'll run away from every difficult thing that ever comes your way. If you chase with all of your might emotional solitude, you'll find it. You get what you go for. And if you think that your hope or your peace or your thriving can come from a particular thing, you'll chase that thing with everything you've got. And this is the problem with the human condition. We were made to worship. And it's impossible for us to live a life where we are not worshiping. Do you know what worship is? Whatever you value enough to chase. Whatever you want enough to sacrifice for. Yeah. That's what you worship. The problem with worship is that you become what you worship. If you go after money with everything you've got, that money will start to shape you into who you are. And honestly, that's a pretty ugly person. Because you don't care about people, you just care about stuff. 
If you chase a relationship with everything you've got, my God, you better hold on tight because when that person disappoints you one time, your whole world will blow up. If you chase that prescription or that drink, because that will make you what you want, that prescription or that drink will control you and it will make you a different person. You get what you go for, but you become what you worship. Worship team, you need to come up. But the truth is, is that there is only one thing that can really satisfy the human soul. There's only one thing. There's only one thing. What are you chasing? What are you pursuing? The absence of negative emotions? Some sense of value and worth that somebody else can give you? Some sort of life where there are no problems? What are you chasing? What do you want? What are you going for? You'll get it. But more accurately, it'll get you. David, I love this. Psalm 27. David, imperfect man. He says this. One thing I have desired of the Lord. I've learned this. One thing. It wasn't the money or the car or the house or the relationship or the emotional stability or the diploma or the ministry opportunity or the acclaim or the followers or the fame. One thing I have learned to desire. This will be my pursuit. This is my agenda. This is everything. One thing that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Why? Because I just wanna behold his beauty a little bit more. If I could just behold his beauty a little bit more. That's all I want. Because nothing else matters more than that. And nothing else satisfies more than that. And nothing else completes but that. One thing I have desired of the Lord, and that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire, in other words, to ask, show me more of you, show me more of your presence, show me more of your grace, show me more of your love. I just want you, I just want, you wanna thrive? Then you better refine your pursuit. Here's the pursuit. If your pursuit and ambition is anything more than knowing Jesus, you will never thrive. And you might be like, Jason, how do I give up all of my pursuits except for Jesus? Oh, here's the thing. I don't need to convince you to do that. All you need to have is one little taste of how good he is and you will understand that there is nothing that could ever compete for your affection or attention ever again. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven, it's, it's like this. There's a dude walking through a field aimlessly, just wandering through a field, trying to figure out life. And boom, all of a sudden, he stubs his foot on a box. And he opens the box. And he realizes that the box is full of treasure. Immediately he turns and sells everything he owns. He liquidates everything. 
and he takes the money and he buys the field so he can have the treasure. There is not one person that ever gave that dude a sermon. You better want Jesus more than anything else. You better give up and forsake and sacrifice for Jesus. No one ever gave him that sermon. No. Do you know what happened to him? He tasted the immense value and worth. And he came to the logical conclusion that it would be the only thing he would ever need, the only thing he could ever want. And for the rest of his life, he only had one pursuit. Psalm 63, put it on the screen. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. It's as if I haven't had a glass of water in years. That's how thirsty I am for more of you. Why? Because I have seen you. I have beheld your power and your glory. I got a taste. And here's my conclusion. Your love is better than life. Nothing compares, nothing comes close, nothing is as worth pursuing. There is nobody and nothing that could ever take his place because he is the one on the throne and my life will not make sense until he also occupies the throne of my heart. So because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will lift my eyes. I will remember you. And I will put a praise on how I feel. I will put a praise on what I'm going through. I will put a praise on my challenges. I will put a praise on my dreams. Because there is only one thing I ask of the Lord. And this will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold his beauty.